Good morning again. I invite you to find your copy of the Word of God, either on your phone or in the Bible that you have in front of you. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll be continuing our series there. Answering the question of what it means to have a meaningful life. As you turn there, I want to personally express a moment of, of thankfulness to you as my church family. Uh, many of you are aware that my wife's mother passed last week, and um, she was a godly woman who has been released from a body that imprisoned her. And so we have experienced from many of you little notes, little texts that remind us of the importance of the church family. And so I want to thank you for filling up my dining room with cards and with flowers and my wife's phone with texts. It means more than you can know. So thank you so much for being our church family during this time. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through chapter 6, verse 9. I want to ask you all a question. Do you want to be rich? Maybe you don't want to be rich, but you would like to be richer than you currently are. Maybe that's a better way to, to state that. Maybe you spend your time dreaming of that next level of earnings and how you're going to spend it or save it or invest it and what you will do with that increase and how that will ease some of the worries of your life. Maybe your time is spent thinking about where you will buy that vacation home and how much time you will now spend there. Maybe your time is spent dreaming about that car that you've always wanted. Many of you know that I have a 16-year-old son, and regularly I receive from him texts with a car on that text. And I said to him, why do you keep sending me these texts? Uh, no reason. I'm on to you, Sam. I know what you're doing. The idea of wealth consumes us, doesn't it? It really is consuming. We are fascinated by it. We are fascinated by what we would call rich people, how they live, how they spend their money, what their total net worth is. We are enraptured by the possibilities that wealth could give us, the possibility of not worrying, the possibility of giving. And ultimately, we have a sense that if we had more money, there would be freedom associated with that. Wealth has always been a goal of humanity. And in America, it maybe could be defined as the goal. The American dream potentially is defined as having more than enough, being rich. America's history is story after story, isn't it, of wealth gained, wealth lost, and that cycle continues over and over again. And one of the things that I thought of was in the great gold rush of 1849, where an estimated 55,000 people traveled in 1849, 55,000 men traveled in 1849 to a little-known area in California where only 1,000 people lived because someone struck gold. And there was this mad gold rush that, that began to take off there in California. Sadly, most of those who went did not strike it rich, but instead found themselves away from family, in the middle of a mining town where crime was rampant, where evenings and nights were spent in behaviors that were meant to silence the disappointment of the day. 
It's estimated that around 100,000 men out of the 300,000 that made their way there died. One-third. Pursuing wealth can be a very costly thing. When you pursue wealth as an answer to life's problems or the longing of your heart, it can ultimately cost you your life. In Ecclesiastes, a passage we find ourselves today, the teacher is telling us that there's a proper way to view wealth, there's a proper way to engage life, and there's an improper way of dealing with wealth. And ultimately, he gets to a point in this passage today where he gives us a definition of what the good life is and isn't. And that's the goal, isn't it? The goal for us is to figure out what that good life is in the world and the time that we have on this earth. So in our text, the teacher wants us to come to the realization that the good life is a life centered on the goodness of God. The good life is a life centered on the goodness of God. And so this is a sentiment that we know to be true in our mind, but we quickly live in the opposite fashion. So today I want to be, spend our time reminding us all of the dangers of pursuing wealth as an answer. We'll spend some time looking at the frustrations that that might bring. But we will ultimately end our time today thinking on the joy that God gives to those who find their life in Him. Why don't you read with me here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, shall he go again. Naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, I have seen what I have seen to be good and fitting it is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. 
Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. One of the first things that we see here in this passage is something that we all know to be true. And the reality is, as we start this passage off in verse 10, is we see that wealth cannot ultimately satisfy. Wealth cannot ultimately satisfy. This is a plight of the wealthy. We see it throughout history. We see it in the mainstream media, and we hear it over the radio. Some of you might remember that the Rolling Stones years ago told us what? They can't get no satisfaction, right? A few years later, U2 had a song called that they still haven't found what they looked for. And in the early 90s, the rapper Notorious B.I.G. told us that with mo' money comes mo' problems. Why is it that wealth can't satisfy? That's a gigantic question, and frankly, it's a question we need to understand because if we don't reconcile the answers to that question, we'll continue to pursue wealth as an answer. Why is it that wealth will not satisfy? Well, let's look here. Just work through some of the text here and pull out the nuggets that answer that question. Verse 10, here's why wealth will not, cannot ultimately satisfy. Number one, verse 10 tells us that there is never enough money. There's never enough. Some of you can identify that. There's more month than there is money. There's never enough. No matter how much you make, there could always be more that you would like to have. Now, there's an important detail here in verse 10. Money is not bad, is not intrinsically evil. But there's a little word of affection in verse 10 that mirrors what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And that word is love. He who loves money. This idea of being consumed with it and pursuing it to the expense of others. And when wealth is your goal, no matter how much you might achieve, attain, earn, there is always the hope of more. And history is littered with illustrations of this principle proving true, but there's one particular quote that I want to bring to your attention today by the man John D. Rockefeller. You're familiar with who John D. Rockefeller was. He was at one point the world's richest man after starting Standard Oil in the turn of the century, and he was the first American billionaire. It's estimated that his wealth if it were turned into modern monies, was around $400 billion. Unbelievable wealth. And he was asked by a reporter one day, John, how much is enough? And John Rockefeller looked at the reporter and said, just a little more. $400 billion. And how much is enough? just a little more. Now, all of us in this room look at John D. Rockefeller and we say, well, what's wrong with that guy? We cast judgment upon him because we say that we would not have that same response. But I call your bluff. We have that response now. 
How much is enough? And all of us in this room would say, just a little more. As much as we know wealth will not satisfy, we pursue it as a source of satisfaction. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves behind. Money ultimately cannot satisfy. In verse 11, as we go on, not only do we see that money can't satisfy, we also see that wealth can ultimately create loneliness. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has the owner but to see them with his eyes? As you increase in wealth, there are those who want to benefit from your wealth. We hear numerous stories of professional athletes who have men and women who suddenly appear as family members and who become a part of their payroll. Michael Vick, some of you remember that name, Michael Vick in his heyday had around 55 people on his payroll every single month. Unbelievable. There are those who come out of the woodwork to use your means. And this is what the the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. As your means increase, so to those who have use of your means. There are bigger homes that you have to buy. There's more homes that you have to buy. There's more cars that you have to buy. There's more insurance for those cars. There's more taxes that come out. And then ultimately that leaves you to be the one who just simply watches others enjoy that which you have earned. Wealth can ultimately create loneliness. And so the third reason that the author gives us on why wealth can't satisfy, there's never enough of it, it creates loneliness. The third reason is the indulgence of wealth prevents rest. And here we see in verse 12 that sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is the convergence of indulgences and affluence that wealth affords. And notice that the teacher contrasts the rest of the laborer with the unrest of the wealthy. And that laborer has what is called a sweet rest, that rest of being tired from a hard day's work, that rest of knowing that your day is done until tomorrow. The wealthy don't have that. The rich worry. They see their riches slipping away. They fret. They're anxious about the lack of control, and they're anxious about losing all that they've worked so hard to gain. Rest is hard to come by. But more than the lack of satisfaction, the lack of friends, the lack of rest, there's a greater danger to the pursuit of wealth. There's a greater danger to the pursuit of wealth, and that's what Christ begins to speak to in the New Testament. And I think it's important for us to understand that the danger of loving wealth isn't just an existence on this earth that is dissatisfied, but it can ultimately cause you to miss the beauty of the gospel. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, just note this, we're not going to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus Christ begins to speak to his disciples about the, the, the difference between following him and following money. And he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. But we try, don't we? Why can't we? 
Well, because both God and money make all-consuming demands upon you. They are naturally in conflict with one another. You cannot serve both God and money. And Christ doesn't take his foot off the gas, but continues to speak and says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, regarding the parable of the sowers, you're familiar with that parable. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, and notice this phrase in Matthew chapter 13, verse 22, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. Choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches. What is the deceitfulness of riches? That it can answer the longing of your heart. And so the love of wealth can ultimately prevent one's heart from being surrendered to Christ. And Christ has more to say. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 through 25 And Jesus looked to his disciples and said, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we know how the disciples responded, right? Well, how can anyone enter? In Christ's words, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Why is it so difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Because in wealth, there's a facade of not needing anything. And so you ultimately don't feel as if you need a Savior. We know these realities. I'm not saying anything new to you this morning. You know this in your heart. You have lived it as your experience. But in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher wants us to understand and be reminded that the deceitfulness of wealth and the pursuit of wealth has dramatic implications for both your physical life and your spiritual reality. And we oftentimes get all out of whack in the way in which we prioritize wealth and the pursuit of it. And some of you are like me, When Pastor Nick gave me this text, I read this and said, well, I'm not wealthy. I don't need to worry about this. But how wrong is that? We are wealthy. And even if you don't have a lot of zeros to your net worth, you do indeed value and pursue money. And money can ultimately take higher priority than it ought in your life. And so the author, the teacher here, gives us a couple of case studies to help us understand whether or not money has become out of whack in our life. Two case studies, two illustrations that will help us understand to look at our life and say, maybe if this is me, money has become a God in my life. Case study number one is found in verses 13 through 17. It's the case study of the one who kept his riches. The one who kept his riches. This is a very painful illustration here in verse 13. This is a grievous evil that the teacher says. The riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. He toiled and worked for them, and he kept them and hoarded them to himself. He sacrificed time and again for his wealth. And in one fell swoop in verse 14, we see that those riches were lost in a bad venture. All the fears were realized in one fell swoop. Now what? 
Who is this man? What does he do? Well, the teacher tells us that this man now is exposed, is vulnerable. His foundation is revealed for what it was. And the teacher is telling us this, that if you are one who hoards your riches, if you are one who simply builds up your wealth as the goal, your foundation is very shallow. Your identity is surface. Riches are temporary. And if we have found all of our meaning in our accumulation, we will ultimately be left with nothing. And the question I ask is, why is hoarding your money, why is it saving all that you've earned so dangerous? Well, once again, let's go to our teacher, Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 12, he tells a story about one who stored up so much and built bigger barns because he had so much. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15 through 21, the one who stores up his wealth in barns looks at his barns and looks at all that he has saved, and he says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up. Now relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Maybe we've said the same thing. The problem with storing up and making your goal the accumulation of wealth is that, it, number one, it never satisfies, but number two, you become your own God. I need nothing else. I'm satisfied enough of myself. C.S. Lewis says this about accumulating great wealth. He says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may become quite satisfied with the kind of happiness money can give. And so then you fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment dependent upon God. And so Christ, in that story in Luke, says the reason he tells them this story is that they are to take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Be very aware if you are one whose focus is on hoarding that which God has given you. Perhaps money is out of a line in your life. Another evidence that wealth has been wrongly positioned, another illustration is seen in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. This is the reality of, of having it all but enjoying none of it. Enjoying none of it. He says there's an evil in verse 1 of chapter 6. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger does. This is an evil that he refers to. It is an evil thing to have it all but not enjoy it. And notice the phrase, the description that he says, it lies heavy on mankind. What that means is, this is the reality that it is all of mankind's experience. That you can have everything, you can have wealth, you can have possessions, you can have honor and enjoy none of it. Time and time again, those who think they have it all are in obvious discontent with any of it. Why is that? Well, we see here, God does not grant him the power to enjoy it. By the way, friends, this is an act of God's grace for humanity. 
that he does not let your heart be fully satisfied with the things of this world. And in that is an act of grace where he calls you to the one who does indeed satisfy. So perhaps money in your life is out of a line if you have it all but enjoy none of it. So we look at the positioning of wealth and riches, and we look at the dangers that are there, and we, we know that wealth cannot satisfy, that it leaves us wanting, that it demands more than it gives, and that true rest is hard to come by. And we know that wealth is temporary and can be a joyless experience. And I want you to kind of sense here, as we work through this passage, there's almost a little bit of a, a frantic, exhausting side to this discussion. And that's really the idea here. The language that is used to describe the futile nature of wealth is meant to draw out within us this sense of, oh my goodness, it is vanity. It is grasping after the wind, those things that you cannot grab. And he writes all this down. The teacher writes all this down with the intent that the learner, which is you and I, will see that the tragic ending doesn't have to be the case. And so the teacher gives us the answer to what is the good life. And notice it's sandwiched right in between the illustrations of the futility of wealth. Look at verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Ah. <sighs> You could almost sense a relaxation, a, a sense of pause as the good life is defined. And so what is the good life? It's a proper ordering of affections. And as we think about how we can order our life around the things of God, there's really three things that we want to pull out in these two verses that will help us order our life. I want you to notice that in these two verses, 18 through 20, God is mentioned six times. And that's more than the rest of this passage. And the reason that God is mentioned six times in these two verses is that the teacher wants us to understand that at the root of the good life is a surrender to who God is. It's a readiness to take what is given to us as heaven sent, whether it is toil or wealth or both. Recognizing that the root of the good life is found in a surrender to God. And so to live with a proper and godly perspective towards life, there are three points that the teacher encourages us to remember. Number one, God has given you your life. Not an obvious thing, but we have to be reminded of that because we tend to think that we are the ones who control our life. God has given you your life. And since God has given you your life, it is best for us to simply enjoy the tasks of the day. God has awoken you today. He's given you breath, and he will give you tasks to do today. And as you do these small tasks, you are actually living in obedience to God. 
The joys of the day are God's joys to you. The food of the day is God's food to you. The drink of the day is God's drink to you. The work of the day is God's gift to you. And as we live that way, there's a sense of purpose for your day. Last week, Pastor Nick reflected on the reality that God has given us these times. He has placed you in this time that you might live in awe of Him. We are not here on our own accord. God has placed you in this time, in this place, to live out His purpose for all of the days that He has given you. And what is the goal of the days that God has given you? Some of you are familiar with A.W. Tozer, wonderful pastor in the 50s. He says, When I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it solves a great deal of anxiety. When, everything, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it solves a great deal of anxiety. The purpose of our days is not to increase our kingdom, our name, or our wealth. The purpose of our days is to live in such a way that the glory and beauty of God cannot be ignored. Christ, God has given you life, but he's also given you new life in Christ. Understand this. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are told that if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. As a new creation, you live with a new purpose. And so understand that God has given you life. Secondly, notice that the author says God has given you wealth and the ability to enjoy it. In verse 19, he tells us that, yes, wealth can be enjoyed. As we said early on, wealth is not evil, but the love of wealth is and can be. It becomes an evil thing when we view wealth as our wealth and we fail to recognize that God has indeed given you these things. The world that God has created is full of many good things that should be enjoyed as you recognize that he gave them to you. And so the teacher is revealing that it is only through God that the good things on earth can be enjoyed. And you're allowed to enjoy them. This is a calling back to a joy that can only be found in God. So God has given you wealth. But also, in Christ, God has given you an inheritance. There's an ultimate security in Christ. The ebbs and flows of this life will be certain. There will be days of plenty. There will be days of want. But for the Christian, there's a solidifying effect There's a foundation that is within us that girds us up for the ebbs and flows of this life. And do not take this lightly because you know it to be true for so many years. In 1 Peter 1, verses 3-4, through we are told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is tremendous strength and understanding that you are kept by God. And so God gives you wealth, but he also in Christ gives you an inheritance. And then lastly, verse 20, God will occupy you with joy. 
That's a great statement, isn't it? God will occupy you with joy. When we live in the enjoyment of God and His gifts, when we understand that the days He's given us are from Him, there is joy that occupies your soul. And that causes, as is said in verse 20, life's short vanity to all be forgotten. What a wonderful thought that our days would be occupied by God. Imagine with me how the priorities of life would be ordered properly, right? When living in the almighty, sovereign, and merciful God's control. And this is a reality, friends. When you begin to order your life around the reality that God has given you life, that God has given you your wealth, then you understand that all those things are His, first and foremost, and in that comes His joy. So the teacher desires us to learn that there are two ways to live. As one consumed by the frantic complexity of vain pursuits, or in the simple enjoyment of his gifts and for his glory. The gift of his life, the gift of his provision, and the joy that comes through him. And the teacher's message is clear. Life does not have to be vain. Life can be enjoyed. And so this teacher is offering us an illustration of his own experience, and he's offering an invitation to enjoy God's good gifts. And it's not just an invitation the teacher makes. It's an invitation that God himself makes through Jesus Christ. Just listen in closing here to the invitation of Jesus Christ in contrast to what we experience in the madness of wealth. Jesus says to us this morning, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The good life is a life centered on the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would be a people whose life is centered upon your goodness. Lord, thank you that you have not left us to figure these out on our own, but we can learn from the teacher here in Ecclesiastes, and we can know that there is a way of life that is vain. There is a frustrated existence found in the pursuit of the temporary, but in you... There is joy. There is release. There's an inheritance. And Lord, we know that that inheritance is kept secure for us in heaven through the work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that for those Christians in this room who have potentially fallen prey to the lure of wealth and the pursuit of it, Lord, may you restore the focus that calls us to live for your glory. Lord, for those of us in this room who are not wealthy but idealize it, Lord, may you cause us to be satisfied in what you have given us ultimately through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we worship you. We worship you as you call us to worship you. And so, Lord, as we conclude our time today, may you receive our praise as we sing to you and extol your great goodness and your great name. In your name we pray. Amen.